Our guest on this edition of the Geopolitics and Empire podcast is Professor Issa Blumi, who is Senior Lecturer of Turkish Studies at the Stockholm University Institute. We will be discussing the geopolitics of the Yemen war and his latest book, Destroying Yemen, What Chaos in Arabia Tells Us About the World. And we are interviewing Issa Blumi because you, the listeners, requested we have him on to discuss Yemen. I would also like to remind podcast listeners that we are a relatively young podcast managed by a skeleton crew, an army of one, myself, and that there are a few very simple actions you can take to help us. These include subscribing to our Twitter account, Facebook page, YouTube channel, and other accounts. Send us your comments and guest requests. A big help is to log into your iTunes account, find our podcast, and leave us a rating and short review. You can also support us financially via Patreon, PayPal, or Bitcoin. I would also like to clarify that the Geopolitics and Empire podcast is ideologically neither left nor right, but that we do dislike war, empire, and any form of subjugation and foreign intervention carried out by any actor. Now on to our interview. It's an honor to have you on the show, Dr. Blumi. It's a pleasure to be on with you, and I'm looking forward to sharing uh, this conversation with your audience. Now, your book, Destroying Yemen, is very unique, and I highly recommend it to listeners because you approach the geopolitical situation from a vantage point, uh, perhaps not, not so common up until now, where you take into account not only the national and regional Yemeni and Saudi rivalries, Uh, including the GCC, but what I consider even more important, the globalist or imperial external forces that are responsible for much of the conflagration we see in Yemen. Let's first start with a bit of context and your definition of this empire, because after all, this podcast is called Geopolitics and Empire. And in your book, you describe this globalism as a system or regime that perhaps in a way does not allow any people, group or nation to remain outside its technological or financial system of control because Yemen has for a long time tried to remain self-sustainable. Um, and I also think it's it's an important prism through which to analyze geopolitics in the world because it's often kind of an elephant in the room where mainstream media and geopolitical analysis tend to provide a sanitized version of events which uh, omit this important talking point. So what's your definition and, and context? Uh, yes, well, um, I would say that it's, it's an evolution, it's a byproduct of, uh, of an evolution that is fraught with contingency, constantly modified, it's not following any kind of uh, well-laid-out um, uh, guidebook or plan. This is indeed a, a byproduct of very complicated sets of interactions uh, throughout the world. Uh, it's, while geographically we can identify the primary beneficiaries, at least until uh, the uh, middle of the 20th century, is being concentrated in the North Atlantic world, geographically speaking, and certainly the byproduct of uh, innovations in, in accounting, in, in how uh, finance capitalism evolves through uh, companies, the creation of uh, bond uh, markets, uh, the stock exchange, uh, the relationship that this new source of, uh, of, of money, if you will, um, enables certain actors to actually go beyond what had long been established principles of uh, exchange, uh, both material exchange and cultural exchange, to become 
actually envision then a, 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 a larger uh, presence in the world that's monopolistic uh, as opposed to uh, cooperative, um, working along lines of a mercantilist system that um, operates on some basic principles of, of, of common interest to something that actually becomes hegemonic, the investment in then uh, cultural hegemony as opposed to just simple material hegemony. And the, where we're at today is uh, empire has uh, significantly modified to um, become a global project that is in itself forced due to uh, the limits of this never-ending um, quest for profits, for expansion, that now there needs to be uh, a dramatic uh, shift, if you will. There's now an interesting almost... Um, byproduct of this uh, Bretton Woods uh, regime that was established after 44, in which supposedly the, the primary um, uh, enterprise to continue this project of global um, hegemony and exploitation of the raw materials that were increasingly needed by industrial uh, capital was um, tailored to service uh, an American expansionist uh, state that would continue this process uh, through uh, the most wealthy and most powerful state um, the world has ever known, with especially the use of, uh, threatened use of nuclear weapons if necessary. And Yemen has long uh, been at the forefront of the, resisting this um, enterprise that really takes shape in the second half of the 18, 19th century, excuse me and increasingly uh, envisions the Middle East as the primary center of, uh, of investment in new uh, regimes, uh, new technologies of, of knowledge uh, that um, scholars uh, have been increasingly studying in the context of post-colonial um, theory and things like that. So the empire, uh, I would suggest to your readers as you, uh, as we continue, to, or listeners, sorry, as we continue to talk about empire, refer to it, not to see it entirely as a geographically set entity. Um, it's certainly still um, siphoning off um, wealth, material wealth and intellectual wealth, but also uh, financial uh, resources as the world economy changes to service more and more finance capitalism in its constant search for liquidity. And I put uh, the story of Yemen since the 1990s in that context of constant efforts to secure what remains of, uh, of savings outside this uh, financial capital system concentrated in equity markets and in North Atlantic world from London, City of London to uh, New York Stock Exchange, etc. And uh, I would suggest that uh, in the process of this war uh, uh, unleashed on a still resilient a part of uh, the global south uh, empire itself is changing once again and, and you can see that manifested um, and that's something that i would say was a possibility um, the petrol dollar um, is coming to an end and the apparatus that was often used by um, empire since the beginning of the 20th century which tied in with the petrol dollar and opec and the recycling of uh, expense and spend, spending of resources to purchase uh, the raw materials necessary for late industrialization is now transforming. Where it's going, 
we don't know. But Yemen is certainly ushering in a new era in which the instruments of empire in uh, the form of the Saudi state uh, is likely to end. Um, and where it's going to go after that uh, is still an open question. And before we get into Yemen, one more interesting thing you write about in your book, and not only you, but you know previous guests that I've had on, uh, actually Jeremy Kuzmarov, who wrote a book uh, about the U.S.-Russia relations in the new Cold War, he mentioned the same thing uh, th- that you touched upon, and that is the empire's use of higher education and, and universities as some kind of like you know training technocrats to to manage this system and you know for me it's interesting because i'm a bit of a roving uh, professor and i find this very intriguing so you know in some ways international relations or political science students are unwittingly you know being brainwashed into becoming technocratic managers Uh, i remember one of my students recently uh, I, I read that she was uh, going to work for the National Endowment for Democracy, or one of its subsidiaries. Uh, <laughs> one of its subsidiaries, which you know, they're involved in the job. Well done, man. Yeah, job well done. I tried, I tried my best, but um, <laughs> I, I, I reached out to the student and warned her. You know, I, I, right when I, I saw, you know, in, in the LinkedIn the, the notification that the student was get, uh, work uh, getting a job there. Stephen Kinzer yeah. came out. Uh, with an article in the Boston Globe precisely about the NED and how Trump, at least at the time, was scaling back funding. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm not sure what the students' motivations was uh, in the end uh, were. But uh, can you talk a little bit about the this the, the use of, of higher higher education and the problems you see there? Yeah, that it's long been a, um, a very important instrument of expanding influence in otherwise inaccessible. Um, but still very uh, lucrative corners of the global economy, if we want to talk in those ways. So, so uh, accessing people who would actually facilitate the uh, continuing plunder or expanding the, the plundering um, enterprise of, of global finance capital or finance capitalism itself or empire, right? Imperialism, according to Lenin, is the, 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 the highest stage of, of capitalist um, uh, exploitative um, it's the iteration of, of the, um, the apparatus of, of capitalism and as it continues to exploit um, the remaining parts of the world yet untouched. And uh, at some point in time, the, the fusing of um, incorporating and co-opting um, eager beagers who, who would be more than happy to join the enterprise at the expense of their own community's long-term survival um, is a phenomenon of the 19th and 20th century. Starts, of course, first and foremost in the. Well, it depends. I, I, some will argue that many of the uh, this, the structural dynamics of uh, of empire, at least in the home in home front, is actually shaped by experience through the application of these uh, administrative uh, uh, tools in the colonies or in, in, in the peripheries of the global economy. And that may be the case, but certainly one thing that um, has been perfected first um, in the core uh, zone of empire is education, its use of indoctrinating a, a certain class of aspiring um, uh, individuals who would then help implement an otherwise um, impossible project of um, 
of expanding the capacity of the um, apparatus to no longer just fight wars, but also to administer and ultimately incorporate through a willful kind of investment in, in a global project that has been celebrated largely through these um, allies, if you will, of empire who have been indoctrinated and brainwashed. Or maybe they're, or maybe as your student, as certainly some of my students who have gone the same track are perfectly, under, they understand very well what's going on, but they also rationalize that this is the only way for me to make money. This is the only way that I can actually um, protect my family from the ultimate consequences of destruction. And by the way, it's, and this is one of those uh, fine ir ironies that many of the main revolutionaries of the 20th century actually were educated in the, the uh, empire's uh, main universities uh, with the initial intention, of course, to make them serviceable to global capitalism. So whether it be Ho Chi Minh or or others, right? They they actually have been able to harness some of the the very tools of empire against empire. Um, that is not the case per se in the in the, the North Yemen context, uh, which is I find especially interesting. These are the people who have consistently resisted empire are actually not the products of. Uh, the Enlightenment or are, are often very not even capable of communicating in, in the discourse of, uh, of the, of the so-called uh, West, which I find so interesting about a place like Yemen. It really is an authentically indigenous um, enterprise of resistance that goes back again for at least 100 years, if not early. Um, so uh, there are actually a couple of tracks that we can understand um, the way um, imperialism has worked over the period of 150 years, certainly indoctrinating a, a key element of um, the administration of empire um, certainly makes sense, uh, but whether or not we comply, I mean, you and I have been educated as well in that system, and we certainly know how to communicate it, and many others have as well. Um, what is increasingly make clear is um, the, the options for those of us who are, in fact, somewhat rebellious or would prefer not to work for um, empire. The options we have are increasingly difficult to find if you want to continue to do what we do. Um, as you yourself have admitted, you're a nomad, and I would consider myself also frustratingly um, um, itinerant in my places where I live and where I can actually find a place to um, continue to teach and, and publish from. So um, we're in an interesting time for those who come from the, the heart of this uh, apparatus of indoctrination but have resisted it using the same logic, if, if you will, the language that they use. Uh, but now the structures have changed to the point where it's almost impossible to find a, a job in especially the more important influential uh, institutions that continue this process. Yeah. Now, there's that wonderful uh, story uh, of John Perkins' life story. I don't know if the, the Confessions of Economic Hitman, he, he gives this story a couple times in different uh, mediums, but there's that one iconic interview he gives uh, to a Boston radio station, which is recorded on YouTube, and how he was recruited to join the the Peace Corps. So in the 50s and 60s, this was one uh, access point for people who were maybe at the undergraduate level educated enough to serve as empire and become kind of instruments of uh, inter uh, interjecting into 
inaccessible parts of the world, right, under the, uh, the cover of development and the um, the charitable work of of the white man who's uh, you know, replacing the missionaries of the 19th century by no longer bringing gospel, but bringing the gospel of modernity and development to the Amazon or to, in the case of Yemen, many people in the 50s and 60s started their careers as Peace Corps workers or working for USAID and then um, got scholarships to continue on and became uh, anthropologists. And you can see them in the reports of the USAID they, who are continuously hiring these people as they are, um, kind of develop a career, if you will, a personality that's both um, uh, academic, but also functioning in whether it be formally in the U.S. government agency or for international agencies like the U.N. or increasingly now even through these so-called NGOs that are operating in theory independently from either. So there, there, is, there are clear um, career trajectories that can sometimes um, take, take people who want to do good into um, kind of a logical um, uh, direction that ultimately leads them, even if they don't uh, profess that they are doing this or even admit that they're doing this, to, to de facto help empire um, along its way. Um, and it really does, in the case of Yemen, which I talk about extensively in Chapter 4 of the book, um, it's it's an interesting um, um, story uh, to follow the careers of important um, voices in the academic world who start out their lives working for whether it be Peace Corps or for um, so-called development agencies at the time. And I would su suspect that we're seeing a similar kind of new generation of um, advocates who, on the in their own uh, LinkedIn um, profiles consider themselves to be defenders of the poor and the weak of the world, but who, um, by the very fact of their association with agencies, NGOs, and how they actually fund these operations are, in fact, um, providing cover for um, this, this last stage of um, imperialism um, that accesses the last levels of resistance that come in the form of... Um, parallel uh, economies, right? Actors in mafias or actors in smuggling complexes or in places like Yemen where you have still well-armed militias who are able to be mobilized to resist the, um, the physical occupation of their country. So um, I wish your, your student well, um, and um, I, hopefully at one point she realizes that she's actually not, not um, in any ways resisting empire by even servicing them it's funny you mention that because I was in the Peace Corps and on the precursor to this podcast on, our, on my previous channel uh, with my class, we interviewed John, John Perkins, the economic hitman, and that's, that's up online. Um, so let's get into the war in, in Yemen. You know, uh, mainstream media provides us with sort of a banal version of events. Uh, related to the war, if you look at BBC, CNN, and just before the podcast, I was browsing Google News and, you know, it's just dozens of stories discussing the famine, occasionally Saudi Arabia, but never the real root causes of the war, which you in detail, almost in technical detail, uh, describe in your book, going back a, a century up until today. 
And the other version suggests sort of that the war is just a continuation of, you know, the empire, US, UK, EU, NATO, Saudi, uh, Israeli proxy warfare, um, basically designed to regime change independent players such as we've seen in Iraq, Libya, Syria, now Yemen and Iran, potentially. Um, you know, some of the context you provide that it seemed like it was unfinished Saudi business from a century ago where the Saudis were trying to annex parts of, of Yemen. So can you tell us, um, and the other point is that Yemen held out against the empire for a long time until President Saleh sold out uh, Yemen to the imperial interests, which included the Bush dynasty, oil companies, and so on. So can you tell us briefly uh, the who are the main players in the Yemen war? You know, what are the main causes of it, the real motivations? Uh, well, if we if we consider that this is this 2015 blip, uh, it is now um, heavy investment in direct military intervention. Uh, it was a response to a failed attempt of a um, transition, if you will, an interim period in which the United States and its regional ally, Saudi Arabia and Qatar, uh, tried to impose uh, a transitional regime under the, man, the name of uh, former Vice President Ali Abdullah Saleh, the man who ruled Yemen through his various alliances over the years for 32 years. So uh, Mansour Adi. H-A-D-I, uh, that proved to be a failure. Uh, he was certainly successful in uh, introducing uh, new austerity, which um, uh, prior to his entry in 2012 as that um, intermediary um, short-term um, president um, um, at the insistence of the United Nations Security Council and the local powers, Qatar and Saudi Arabia and the U.S., of course being the principal supporter of this. Uh, Yemen was under, uh, very much like many other countries, uh, facing uh, financial problems. There were pressures on the Saleh regime to um, help in implement uh, austerity um, on um, lar large aspects of the society. There were, uh, throughout the 1990s and 2000s, attempts to integrate the Yemeni economy into what we would call this global economy or processes of globalization, neoliberal reforms, which were uh, structural. Uh, um, and what's so interesting about the previous regime that's ultimately deemed to be no longer pliable and viable and reliable um, because of the events of 2010, 2011, the so-called Arab Spring playing itself out in very distinctive ways throughout uh, Yemen, uh, was that he was... Ali Abdullah Saleh, just very much like Yemenis in the past, continued to uh, buy time to balance competing interests. So China became an important uh, player. Uh, the, uh, the close relationship that Ali Abdullah Saleh had with Abu Dhabi, um, whose um, investment in um, certain uh, key assets was deemed to be a direct con um, source of conflict for other interested parties, uh, including the Americans under Barack Obama who, who, and, and, and the Clintons and the neocons and more generally, as they've now shown their face with the, um, now confronted by this phenomenon of Trump and, um, and the, the, uh, what we call the T-movement, so-called T-movement that Bannon was able, was able to mobilize. There's resentment of empire and how it was exploiting uh, largely white 
um, what used to be middle-class America, impoverishing the working class, if you will, and the middle class in the United States um, is, a, is a byproduct of, uh, in, in the case of Yemen, um, open uh, rebellion uh, to what were concessions ultimately given by Allah Abdul Salah to cut back um, um, food subsidies in food and fuel, uh, the continuously plundering of the, uh, the national wealth in oil, even though um, uh, revenue was dropping, there was little limited investment in expanding capacity. There was the continuous uh, struggle for violent struggle in the Northwest for um, uh, securitizing, if you will, a newly established uh, frontier, which was imposed in the year 2000 between Saudi Arabia and, uh, and Yemen. Um, so there are all kinds of factors that are contributing to why Yemenis collectively are revolting and why certain areas of Yemen and, the, let's say, a long-term re uh, rebellion to central state and the imposition of uh, IMF in, um, demands on uh, austerity, uh, the restructuring of the Yemeni economy to become more serviceable to uh, neoliberal um, globalization, if you will including um, the opening up of the Yemeni economy to outside investment, um, using the capacity of Yemenis, the Yemeni state to borrow money to basically pay for developing infrastructure that would later then be, of course, serviceable to uh, global um, interests, whether it be banks will profit from the debt, um, the debt that, that would um, anchor the future of Yemen and then the natural resources that would be uh, used as collateral um, i'm kind of losing my train of thought but the why the war is because this hadi uh, interim government who was reimposing uh, this uh, this period of austerity uh, integrating yemen into the world trade organization's regime which would fit the imf and, and w uh, and world bank's demands for uh, continued structural uh, uh, structural adjustments um and more importantly, the reassertion, or for the first time, uh, the political assertion of especially Qatari interests through the Islam Party, which is a Muslim Brotherhood-backed party that in, in many ways the Saudis, interesting enough, were also quite supportive of. And it just blew up. And by 2014, the kinds of political violence that uh, was a result of this short-term regime, the, um, the attempts by certain external players to uh, help expedite this process of integration, the impositions I write in my book of this attempt to federalize Yemen, to break it up and disaggregate the territories of Yemen into more pliable territories, um, independently administered zones in which much of the oil wealth and offshore, especially offshore, but also on land, oil wealth, gas and, uh, and mining, which is based in a largely unpopulated parts of central and eastern Yemen, what used to be South Yemen when it was an independent country. I was going to go to a very small group of, uh, of interested um, allies of empire and a small population. So that was ultimately... Uh, the, res uh, the response that came from this process, this taking over of Sana, the arresting of this Hadi, accusing him of corruption, and basically making this cry for we Yemenis deserve to be um, part of this process. We need to be on at the table to negotiate this. We can't just have somebody signing off on behalf of, uh, of the, all of Yemen, its future. 
And uh, in all this, this scrambled also for global, uh, the, for what remains of global uh, liquidity, uh, what remains of what uh, of the potential that Yemen offered in terms of developing in, uh, very lucrative. Uh, assets like its fisheries, like its oil and gas, which was, again, still at its rudimentary um, level of exploitation, demanded that uh, Yemen could not go back to a period in which it, it was off the grid, if you will, of the global economy. And it certainly couldn't, the interested parties couldn't countenance uh, a, a, a well-established uh, nationalists, uh, patriotic, and also very spirited resistance that showed military capacity under the coalition of Ansarullah, uh, which um, has been characterized as a proxy of Iran and its Shia movement under the uh, charismatic leadership of someone called Houthi. That's all nonsense. Um, these are all cover for um, making this a simple story of uh, struggle between Saudi Arabia and Iran or um, this, this discourse about trying to replace a legitimate government by the name of Hadi, who was, again, had no legitimacy, there was no election, there was no integration and no discussion of uh, some kind of negotiation table, including many peoples um, who were principally the ones resisting until today. And at the same time, we're see, we were seeing it, uh, um, Saudi Arabia in particular as an enterprise in this global struggle for of um, the, what was available of liquidity, um, suffering uh, under a serious um, downturn in, in in revenues, whether from due to low oil prices and this constant demand that it contribute to the global economy, that it uh, contributes, continue to play a central role in in siphoning off uh, resources of the larger region. The fact that Syria did not collapse, the fact that um, there were still considerable, um, um, i say, assets like Yemen off the grid made it quite clear to certain interested parties in Saudi Arabia that this was their last chance to securing um, um, resources that it would need to continue on with this, um, this i say, uh, new era of, if, of Saudi uh, political economy. And that includes issuing the IPO for Aramco. And as I argue in the book, and something that's actually very much hidden in, in even in the uh, the mainstream financial uh, news, whether it be a Financial Times or or uh, Reuters or Washington, Wall Street Journal, is that uh, the, one of the reasons why the IPO did not work is that Aramco actually doesn't have an oil reserves that it claims it has. Uh, it actually uh, no one will be put money into Aramco if it is basically dependent on the uh, available oil resources of, of territorial Saudi Arabia. Um, the whole idea about this war in many ways is to secure the natural resources that are just on the other side of the Saudi border in Yemen, which are considerable. Um, many areas of Yemen have yet to been ex be explored because Yemen has long been able to, as a sovereign independent state, demand very high standards of engagement with oil companies. So. Much of uh, Yemen's offshore, especially offshore assets, which includes uh, the Horn of Africa, by the way, oil and gas, has not been explored properly. And as we're already beginning to see in places like Puntland, where there are Australian and Italian companies that are drilling and finding huge, huge oil wells and uh, oil um, reserves and, and, and natural gas, that the suspicion is that there's tons of that stuff offshore of Yemen.
And so any country in the region that could capture this would guarantee the ability to finance um, any kind of 2030 project that's, um, Mohammed, that's now associated with Mohammed bin Salman, for instance. The whole idea of building and developing the eastern, the western coast of Saudi Arabia akin to what happened in Dubai uh, was, is, was really the only uh, um, economic uh, program for the future of, of the Arabian Peninsula. The fact that they don't have the resources and the, and the global um, markets understand that. If you talk to brokers, uh, oil brokers, they, they all understand that uh, Aramco buys oil offshore, <laughs> puts a flag on it and claims that it's Saudi oil, where in fact it's bought from the open market. So Aramco doesn't have natural resources and it needs Yemen's natural resources. So there's some ways to account for why this war in 2015 took place. And I can elaborate more about why the GCC is actually, and the whole coalition is in fact a front for and a cover for a much more complicated political, um, let's say, struggle between part, so uh, what was once deemed to be partners uh, in the GCC regarding this war on Yemen. If I'm not mistaken, in your book, uh, you said that the empire had to destroy Yemen, uh, that that was their best option. And as well, you tie Yemen to the decline or, or fall of the empire, whether it's the U.S. And, and I think you've also mentioned like the 2007, 2008 crisis and as well as the liquidity. And we've got these astronomical debts. We're running out of uh, runway here. And I, I don't know if, you know, they need further resources uh, to keep from collapsing. So, I mean, all these different ideas I'm mentioning, is, is there something something there? No, absolutely. Again, the uh, Global South is a wonderful uh, last um, bit of uh, resource to plunder, uh, especially savings, uh, uh, whether it be Indians, Pakistani, Afghani, private money that goes to um, develop uh, and to invest in properties, whether it be in uh, Dubai or Abu Dhabi. Yemen was certainly on the radar screen for developers. The, the kind, if you, if there, was, there were some mega projects that were on the uh, drawing board, uh, Qatari money was going into building up uh, uh, kind of gated communities outside of uh, of Sanaa, uh, uh, Dubai Ports World. Uh, some of their partners were uh, looking not only to invest in uh, in ports themselves, but the considerable assets that were on. Um, associated with Aden, for instance, or Mukalla, there was plenty of uh, areas for speculative uh, real estate. Again, following the model of Dubai, making um, uh, uh, bringing value to what was otherwise just desert, to, uh, making something that didn't have any intrinsic value um, just by uh, marketing it as uh, land that could be used to develop uh, uh, vacation spots. And this is something that. Uh, the Saud family, uh, certain elements of the Saud family saw this as a working model, hoping that they could do similar things to uh, Western, the Red Sea uh, coastline. Uh, they had all these envisioned uh, 2030 uh, projects. Uh, they envisioned building cities akin to what you have in the, in the UAE. Um, um, and, and this was, in a regional uh, context, all um, magnets for for uh, so-called third world um, savings or cash. 
And unfortunately for Empire, as you can see, you can tie, tie, uh, tie this in with what happened in 2000, 2007, 2008, the scramble now for trying to find ways to, um, to recover for all the losses that, yes, implicated the larger global economy and not only um, American or British or Icelandic um, banks suffered, but because of how money now circulates and where liquidity comes into actually shoring up uh, empire's uh, economy it depends on um, the ability of savers uh, to re uh, no, no longer put their money underneath their mattress but actually put their money into equity markets or and buying insurance and 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 borrowing money to um, buy their own kind of dream home so the kind of uh, economy that emerged in the north america and then later on a little bit in europe uh, was spreading throughout the world. Uh, the promise is that if, if some of the savings flows into territories and areas that remain off the grid for as far as empire is concerned, it, it creates global shifts. Whether it's manifested in China or if it's manifested in, in Russia, that becomes increasingly important autonomous players in the global economy. If it's Libya um, threatening to create a, a gold-backed currency on behalf of Africa, or the simple move away from buying or selling oil from the dollar to the euro or alternative currencies, whether it be a gold-backed um, uh, Chinese currency or something else. Um, these are all inter interconnected in interesting ways that I try to lay out in the case for Yemen, that even though Yemen's economy is nowhere near as um, important and significant, let's say, as China, um, that so many of these factors were converging at um, interesting moments on, onto Yemen. So Islamic finance, uh, mi micro loans, these kinds of things that um, were actually playing itself out in Yemen as, an inc as a kind of a laboratory, if you will, for future um, expansion of these same programs throughout the, the Middle East are, are all warning signs uh, to ultimately now when the primary intermediaries for this are on the edge of financial disaster themselves, it becomes now a point where if they could not, and they cannot, obviously, uh, after three and a half years, they have not been able to subdue uh, North Yemen. And because the coalition itself is actually um, um, disguising the competition between three rival regional powers or claimants to um, exclusive authority over uh, the future uh, relationship between empire and the Middle East. And here I'm, I meant the, the Saud family, the, the Thani family in Qatar and uh, the UAE to, uh, uh, to a more interesting way. Uh, means that uh, the failure to actually come to re resolution in, in, in Yemen um, has exposed the, the family in Saud in particular to financial disaster. Uh, we have now heard Trump a couple of weeks ago warn openly in public that to the family in Saudi Arabia that uh, their time is up. Uh, it's clear that over the last year they're not paying the bills. So these uh, uh, seemingly public uh, spite uh, clashes with Canada and Germany um, are really about unpaid bills. And uh, now the United States uh, military-industrial complex, I think, has also now realized that it's run its course as far as cash payments for those weapons that are very seemingly a very lucrative business, but they can only 
come in the form of direct payments, no one will accept Saudi credit anymore because they, everyone knows that they're bankrupt, that this war has bankrupted Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia is already bankrupt in many ways. It doesn't have the oil, and it's not able to exploit the oil uh, fields of, of Yemen to make Aramco that one last bit of asset that they could actually issue an IPO and produce hundreds of billions of dollars of, of inf inflow of cash, of investors' cash. So we need to actually be sophisticated observers of how global economy works, how finance works, and how it's playing itself out in a, in a corner of the world that is never associated with these kinds of the political economy of, of finance. And um, I, it behooves those who are looking at uh, Congo or looking at conflicts over Venezuela uh, today uh, uh, and future conflicts elsewhere in, in similar terms, I think. Uh, um, if anything, this book provides a kind of working model for us to investigate a new uh, conflict and, and what's going on um, as the world, as we move forward now. Can, can you comment on the civilian casualties, the destruction of the infrastructure in, in Yemen, as well as the use of cluster bombs, uh, phosphorus, obviously the indiscriminate targeting of civilians? And I think I just read today or yesterday the Saudis and the Americans, uh, again, further drone strikes, uh, airstrikes, uh, and as well as your comments on the recent reporter allegation that the Saudi journalist uh, Hashkogi that was uh, killed because he was possibly going to expose Saudi use of chemical weapons in Yemen. Mm. You know, these are all complicated. Uh, there are all kinds of um, tangents we can go off on all of this. But just to keep it simple, I guess, in a, in a sad way, the, the idea was to destroy this infrastructure very quickly. Within the first couple of days, the, most, most of the bridges that were linking the highlands of Yemen to the coastal areas were destroyed. The idea was to make the infrastructure um, um, inoperable, uh, making it difficult to distribute food, let alone distribute weapons and soldiers, right? But uh, the idea that if we attack, attack the infrastructure of the uh, limited um, agricultural industry, uh, they attacked dairy farms, they attacked water wells, they, the use of cluster bombs was primarily along in, in, in farmlands, um, the, somewhat akin to uh, the use of uh, Agent Orange to destroy forests to somewhat uh, make it difficult for the Viet Cong to continue their resistance in the countryside. The idea was to starve into submission or to threaten uh, the larger civilian population. What this, what this suggests is that there was an understanding from the very beginning, intelligence, uh, whether it be the U.S. directly or if you want to call it, Saudis had their own independent sources of information. They knew very well that the, those who were um, going to fight against the, the so-called coalition were uh, popularly backed, that they did have the support of a large segment of North Yemeni population, at least. And the fact that they were able to come so quickly and, and, and enter into uh, the fray of southern Yemen and actually occupy Aden for a moment um, was an indication that this is a widespread, uh, um, potentially a widespread war uh, of attrition that um, was, uh, they were hoping that it can intimidate the population and basically um, takes the popular support away from those who are willing to fight. But what this has done is only intensified the support 
not necessarily for one particular party or one particular um, axis of, of a coalition, but they support the idea of defending Yemen from especially Saudi Arabia. Now, that does not exonerate Qatar at all. It's been completely eliminated from the discussions about what is happening in Yemen, which I find very instructive. And I beseech your audience to consider that this, this is an important element moving forward. The fact that uh, the Mohammed bin Salman is representative now of a, a larger problem called Saudi Arabia um, is first and foremost an indication that they failed in their project of uh, becoming and finding a viable long-term solution to their financial problem. There was even the possibility of occupying Qatar um, after this um, kind of ideological spat over who's going to get the spoils of the war, uh, of, of winning the war in Yemen proved unfeasible because they couldn't win the war in Yemen. Uh, mean, meant that the potential of actually just simply occupying, like it happened in Bahrain in 2011, occupying Qatar and in, in its huge uh, gas resources would have resolved the, uh, Saudi Arabia's problems. The, of course, Turkey, Iran, and the UAE intervened in their own ways, in interesting ways, in that respect. So uh, the use of certain kinds of weapons um, are, um, are strategic. Uh, they are meant to intimidate. Some were experimental. There was a, certainly a bunker, bomb, uh, bunker busting bomb dropped um, in 2016 that uh, looked very suspicious to many scientists who looked at the, the video. Uh, it certainly was not a conventional weapon. Uh, it will take some time, if ever, we're going to have uh, more clarification as to what that was. And I just refer, I just suggest your audience to take a look at some of the YouTube uh, video of this um, and just type in nuclear bomb uh, Yemen, and then you can have all the speculation uh, that comes with the, with the comments underneath those images. But um, um, certainly weapons that are deemed... Um, illegal in any context have been regularly used in Iraq or in, in Syria and in Libya are certainly being used also in, in Yemen. And the enterprise of winning a war by trying to intimidate the civilian population from supporting uh, the resistance is now becomes one, it's no longer a war of attrition, it's outright starvation. And that's probably been already uh, at play for a while now, even though finally the um, mainstream media, largely because clearly um, the fate of Saudi Arabia, the family as a whole, or certainly Mohammed bin Salman has been more or less determined that it's, it's over for, um, for, for him as a personality and maybe again the family, as I suggested in my book, over the long term. Now the, the, the issue is where are we are going to go from here. And the fact that the mainstream media is saying that there is starvation means that this is maybe a window of opportunity to justify a more heavy investment in direct intervention, um, which um, is clearly um, related to who is going, which of the GCC powers are going to actually become the intermediaries on behalf of the empire moving forward. And I doubt it's going to be uh, the Saud family. I doubt it's um, um, it's been resolved yet, however, and it's going to be uh, quite nasty because the resistance will continue. They have not been able to subdue uh, the resistance in the northern part of the country, the southern part of the country, which has been under uh, competition between these various interested uh, regional powers, has played itself out in very nasty ways in Aden and in parts of the oil-rich uh, oil areas of Haldermont. 
So the, it's just getting actually more messy. Uh, this 30-day window, which was given by the general United States, Mattis, to get these things resolved, that there will be a ceasefire within 30 days, was this last um, invitation to resolve this war, to capture the port of Hodeida, to really become, to isolate the north of Yemen, to make food, uh, the weapon of food and starvation um, that more pronounced. Because for whatever uh, purpose, whatever reason, North Yemen is still able to um, function uh, as a as a viable resistance to what is supposedly the most impressive military alliance uh, the Middle East has seen uh, for for decades, and yet it's not able to subdue, uh, whether it be through uh, direct military um, confrontation, the use of air power, the use of illegal weapons, and the use of starvation. Um, Yemenis in the north have continued and will continue to resist. And actually, they're getting stronger, it seems. So now the, the, the empire has intervened. The narrative has changed dramatically. Um, this, the relationship, the precarious relationship that um, Saudi Arabia has had with, with empire has now been exposed. And uh, it's good riddance, I, as I suggested in the book. And that means with the end of the Saudi family, as we know it, at least, that means empire itself is dramatically changing structurally. Where it goes from here is uh, anyone's guess. And I'll have one final question as we're running out of time. Um, but <clears throat> you answered a, a large portion of it. But do you feel the the end to the war in Yemen, that it will remain localized. You mentioned Bashar al-Assad and, and how he has uh, managed to maintain, to hold Syria with the assistance of the Russians, and they're, they're stable for now. Um, so do you see the Yemen war ending in a localized manner or the potential for, as you mentioned, with the fall potential fall of Saudi Arabia and their problems as well as the empire that it could lead to a larger uh, uh, how would you say regional war yeah uh, it's certainly not um, clear uh, when um, the maps will inevitably be redrawn uh, in relation to larger Arabia how that's going to play out and why it's going to play out the way it does I, I, I think there will be continued violence in many parts of what we today associate with Yemen. I don't think politically it will ever be reconstituted as a unified country, unfortunately, for Yemenis, for a large majority of Yemenis who still believe in a unified Yemen. That's certainly off the, um, that's not an option anymore, as Libya has been completely fragmented into at least three distinctive territories. Iraq, in many ways, has also been. Uh, permanently uh, segregated and unfortunately for Syria east of Euphrates is um, open zone or large tracks along the Turkish border that will likely be either integrated directly um, and even legalized at some point annexation of those territories that will remain in limbo for for decades and that's what I'm afraid is going to happen in Yemen but that, that just means that there'll be violence there'll be continued violence and because of, of Yemenis who have long uh, cultural links to the larger uh, region, whether as guest workers in the Gulf economies or in on the entire frontiers uh, and what is southwest Saudi Arabia today, 
they will certainly contribute to whatever happens to uh, the next 20 years in that part of the world. And it will likely also translate to new dynamics of violence in the Horn of Africa, I'm afraid, because many of the same factors that contributed to violence in Somalia and in, in the Ogon and Odon, um, region of, of Ethiopia for the last 20, 30 years have not been resolved. Um, they're, they're reanimating a sense of regional alliances, which is, I think, positive, but it could easily be uh, an area of, of new investment by empire to um, rest free from um, these areas ever becoming integrated into areas outside of the direct um, um, uh, influence of empire. And now I'm here, I'm referring to what will happen if China and Russia finally step into this part of the world, as they have apparently done quite late in the game in Syria. Uh, and uh, so th those, those factors have yet to step in. Uh, so they, it will change dramatically I, um, what hap how the uh, ultimate end of the Saudi um, family um, role to play in, in, in the future of, of the world, um, how that will play out um, on the ground. But certainly many of these well-armed um, and now um, uh, quite impressively organized forces that are resisting the coalition against Yemen now uh, will have a role to play in whatever is um, going to be deemed a, the future of that part of the world. So I, I don't see violence in any time soon ending, unfortunately. Yemen um, has been in the throes of a violent exchange with empire for a hundred years. And unfortunately for them, until empire itself completely um, changes, um, which it will, it is it's structurally changing throughout in many different places. But until um, that is actually complete, uh, Yemen itself will, um, the people in Yemen will experience various levels of violence for, for decades, I'm afraid. Is there any final, um, is there any point, a uh, greater point that I may have missed or any final thought you'd like to leave us with? Uh, no, just I wish your, your listeners uh, that they, they spend um, as much time as possible uh, reading across different genres of scholarship and analysis uh, and um, be weary of, of media campaigns that have um, intensified uh, as of late, um, focusing on the evils of uh, Mohammed bin Salman or UAE and exonerating other actors who have um, long been important and indeed equally culpable actors. And I'm speaking specifically of Qatar and Turkey. And certainly don't, um, and I'm sure your audience doesn't do this, but don't, certainly don't let the Americans now co-opt a story that they are intervening to save Yemen or something. And how can people best follow you and your work? Uh, find uh, a way to acquire a copy, uh, legal or illegal, uh, of my book. Uh, I, many of the things that I've, I've published in the past have been up, uh, downloaded or uploaded, uploaded to uh, academy.edu. And I have a Twitter account. You're welcome to see whatever I'm saying on Twitter. And it's my name, Isa.doing. 
Well, I urge all listeners to go out and purchase Dr. Bloomy's book, Destroying Yemen. I just finished reading it and uh, I gave it a great review. You can get the paperback or the ebook uh, version and do, do leave him a, re a review as well if you purchase the legal copy. Um, and the, bo the book really does provide uh, geopolitical insights, uh, as we've been talking about, not only into Yemen, but the Middle East, uh, as well as around the world. Um, so thank you again for your time and for this interview, Dr. Bloomy.